A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. You're listening to episode 266 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. For over a decade, our episodes continue to broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and even on Spotify, and also right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the bonds of friendship between two Padawans, the doctor of timelines, and a Wookiee-sized Star Wars fan in his own right, our own Dr. Jim Lehane. Wait a second. You're classifying me as a Padawan Wookiee? I, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> well, you're the bond of friendship. Like, like That makes you like the Force almost. <laughs> I'm the bond of friends. So who are you friends with? And I'm like the connecting link. Where? Where? Wait a second. <laughs> I'm not your friend. I'm just the link between you and your friends. Right. You're, you're the mystical force of the force's force of friendship's force. The force. The force. <laughs> the force. Of course. Of course. stars beyond the films we ask the tough questions questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that perplexed you off and on you ponder about star wars and so do we this episode we plunge into beyond the films fan favorite canon author claudia gray's star wars the high republic the fallen star now before we get too deep into spoiler territory we'll give you a quick spoiler free rundown just be sure to jump off at tarkin's arrogance So, Jim, what what time frame are we at with this? Like, we're we're at the end of the phase, but not quite the end, right? Uh, well, you are as close to the end of phase one as you can get. Like, there is one two-issue comic series, Eye of the Storm, where even just one of those issues takes place after this. Besides that, nothing that we have so far takes place after this uh, story within the High Republic, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the Midnight one, that one's taking place during this book. Yeah, people were saying that it takes place after. I had just finished it, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It um, a, t- a good chunk of it takes place before this book, and then maybe... Maybe the last couple of pages will take place a day after this book, but I'm pretty sure it's concurrent with the end of this story because there is a little bit of a gap in time um, at the end of this story. And so we're looking at the High Republic. Uh, the first book takes place 232 years before the Battle of Yavin, um, which is 200 years before 
uh, Phantom Menace. And the length of time that we have over this entire story, the Phase 1 story, is about a year and a half. We do not get good time. Like, they give us specific time markers for everything through Tempest Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tempest Runner takes place three months after um, the the Rising Storm, and the Rising Storm takes place almost a year after the uh, Light of the Jedi, but we really do not get any time markers after that. And they just say a few months here, a few months there. So I'm kind of guessing it's um, been about three months after Tempest Runner. So you're looking at six months after the last book, Mm -hmm. uh, which is The Rising Storm. Okay. Makes sense. And what's weird is the next phase that's going to follow this phase is actually a prequel. Um, And what I've noticed, and keeping this spoiler-free for the spoiler-free part, one of the teased about new villains that Roe is bringing in, I, I truly feel like they are going to be the focus of this next phase. We're going to learn more about them. We might learn more about Roe's family. But I, I feel like the next phase is focused on making the villains bigger and making us understand the threat or, or their motives a little bit more. Based on this book and the Eye of the Storm comic series, I am 100% agreeing with you. I believe that um, the next they will be a pivotal part of um, the next series. The, 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 um, not to get too much spoilers, but um, if you read The Rising Storm, something killed Loden Gray Storm. Those things come back in this book. And we find out a lot more about them in this book and the Eye of the Storm comic series, but it still is a lot of what are they? Where are they? What are they doing? What are they coming from? And so I think you're right. I think we're going to find out about them in the, the first uh, or the second arc, which is called Quest of the Jedi and takes place 150 years before this series. Uh, so we're looking at probably about 382 years before the Battle of Yavin. And ironically, this is a book that spoils a major plot point with its cover right out the gate. I mean, you know, I mean, the title and the title. Right. (laughs) That's what people are like. What's the book about? I'm like, I can tell you what the book about it is about. But really, if you paid attention to the cover and the title, it's I can give a one sentence summary of the entire book. Right. And. I think for some people, that might be a turnoff. Um, For me personally, I I really enjoyed it. Um, So was it any good and was it accessible? I I feel like, yeah, this is a really good book. Um, You know, if you're into things that matter to the galactic, uh, you know, moment, this is one of those moments that are huge. You know, I mean... I, we were talking pre-show. I was having a hard time with whether or not the book where we see the fall of uh, the fair or this one was my favorite because both of them just have this grittiness to them and, and just, you know, everything is turned on the Jedi. And th- those are my favorite stories. So it's hard to say which one of those two I like more. But knowing what we were going to be getting through this because of the cover and having that spoiled early didn't change anything. In fact, I was more excited because I knew what was coming to a degree. And I was like, the picture that Claudia Gray paints of what's going on on the station is horrible. And like what you don't get, like there's whole parts of the story that 
we don't get from an actual point of view. It's more secondhand. Like at one point, some characters are at one end of the station and some characters are at the other end of the station, but we're really only focused on a small group at one side. And we don't really know what's going on with the other group. And I kept wondering, you know, like, is that in the comics? Are we going to do that in a kid's book? Like, where is that information going to come from? A lot of that works and doesn't work for me. I, I was so distracted by all the chaos that was going on with the station itself that I would continually forget about Maru and the others that were at the other side of the station. But there at the end, they kind of they give you a little bit of tidbits and stuff. So you kind of get enough out of this book that you know what happened to him without getting an exact what happened to him. But the group you follow on the other side, oh my God, man, the struggle that they went through. Was it any good? Yes, I would say 100% it was good. Was it accessible, though? That's a little harder because I feel like this book requires a lot. Like, I, I don't think you'd want to grab this one and just jump right in. I mean, if you did, I would say only in the aspect of how I introduce people to New Jedi Order. When I introduced my dad and a couple of my best friends to that book, we were at Destiny's Way in the time frame. And I gave him Star by Star, which Isn't if you don't Destiny's know, Way, like the third to last book. Or the second to last book, <laughs> pretty much. It's like it's yeah, it's 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 pretty close. I think it's like four books from the end or five books because it was like uh, one little trilogy and two. Yeah, I think it was five away. But so I gave him Star by Star, which is like the dead center, and it's like one of the major cataclysmic action points. And once they got done with that, they're like, "Oh my god, I got to go back and start this from the beginning." This book might have that kind of effect for certain people, but I wouldn't bank on it. I would say yes. I agree with you about it being accessible. It you are basically reading the third book of a trilogy, not even including the numerous other comics and ever all all those other things where they try to tell a story which does not require you to read the comics, but it's one of those if you read the comics you're going to get more out of the story. And I actually agree with that with this book, uh Mission to Disaster as uh, a completely different uh, st- uh, story, though, I feel like if you don't read the comics, you're definitely not going to get as much out of that book. But um, the upper part of the station where you're right, we it's almost a completely separate story. We do get that in a couple of different locations. Um, Trail of Shadows, we get some of it. That That's a comic series uh, put out by Marvel. Uh, the Marvel High Republic series, we do get a bit more in there. I'm pretty sure the adventure, Star Wars Adventures, we don't get more in that. Um, but like the 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 middle grade novel, Midnight Horizon, actually takes place completely before this book, and we get a lot of inferences to what happened in that book in this book. Uh, and so it actually was supposed to be released at the same time as this book. It got pushed back from January to March, but oh. the audiobook and the um, ebook came out at the beginning of January. And so I was, I actually, um, I do audiobooks, so I listened to that before I did Fall and Start. So since they, um, uh, Justina Ireland had stated on her Twitter that. Midnight Horizon takes place completely before Fallen Star, so it's uh, I was able to actually go in mm-hmm. order with that, and then Midnight Horizon, um, not Midnight Horizon, uh, the Daniel Jose older book, getting all the names mixed up in my head. Mission to Disaster, too many books that sound the same. Well, I was gonna say, I'm like, wasn't Midnight Horizon? No, also Midnight Horizon <laughs> was Justina Ireland. 
Oh. Mission. Oh no. I'm. God, I am big. You're right. I'm. I am. Mission to Disaster is Justina Ireland. That takes place completely before this uh-huh. book that they reference. Midnight Horizon. Is, mm. The names are too similar. Is the young adult novel that takes place concurrently right? with this book that we don't get any references to the upper part of the station at all. Like the, the Midnight Horizon takes place completely mm. separate from uh, the 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 um the starlight beacon and the only reason that we even know time frame wise is they do have mentions of trying to contact starlight beacon and kind of how that goes there um and we do and we do have conversations right. with orla jereni who is one of the main characters in the fallen star uh at the very beginning of midnight horizon so that's that helps see and that was I'm at like I think chapter sixteen or something like that, and and there was a moment where Comac was feeling Orla in the forest, and mm-hmm. I knew exactly what moment in Fallen Star that was. I was just like, oh god, no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if you want to know what's happening with the other part of the star, a star with the other part of the station, uh, really the comic series, the main Marvel series, and the Trail of Shadow series are where you're going to get the best. Um, indications of what's going on with those. And really, Trail of Shadows and the main comic series gives you Avar, where one of my biggest problems with this book is we don't have Avar. And I feel like even like when we talked right. about um, The Rising Storm, Avar wasn't in that book either. Like They are purposely like keeping her to the comics, and as the main female character, I feel like we're missing out on a lot uh, with her or without her here. Mm-hmm. That is something I'm noticing with this project. Um, you know, new Jedi order had a similar issue when you're dealing with multiple medias across the board, you know, that communication with what everyone's doing gets a little strained. And then you have the aspect of there's so many things going on in these books that are just referenced, but we don't know what's going on with them. And I mean, that's, that's where I'm getting really confused. Like, there's a whole scene where Jelios gets the station and Avar basically gets demoted, but that's not in the book. It's not in the, any of the other books. I'm assuming it has to be in the comic. But there's a lot of stuff in a lot of the books that are doing that, where it's just like, you know, they don't really give you a lot of the detail about the stuff. They just mention it. It's almost like the way Lucino would do it, but Lucino would give you a little bit more detail. Whereas, like, with this, I'm... I'm feeling like I have no idea where to look for the answers. You know, like I'd almost need a Spider-Man. See you, AMS number 488. Like, <laughs> I need to know where to go. <laughs> yeah, I'd say this is a spoiler, but it's not really because it doesn't even take place in the book. Is that, You're right. Um, uh, Avar Chris is demoted from being the Marshal of Starlight, but that takes place kind of in the comics that she's in, but not really. She does go off on her mission, like um, they talk about in this book and in the comic series, but they never mention that she is demoted except in this book. And so really the only place they have it is this book. And you're right. It is one of those, like, did this take place elsewhere? No, this is where we're getting it. Right. And everything about the characters, you know, the the main three, the pole stars, as I would put it, which would be uh, Man, uh, Jelios, and Avar. Like, we get some details about the three of them and stuff, but 
I feel like it could have really been blown up more, especially with the weirdness that Jelios has of stepping into her role. Geos. Geos. Selling Geos. Geos. I'm like, I, who I is Jelios? Jelios. <laughs> yeah, this is why the audiobooks are helpful. Although I got to say, the audiobook, the way that they had him talking, I was not a fan. I was like, that's not how he talked in my voice, in my mind. He was a lot cooler. Like, <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I kept thinking, like, especially with those two. I mean, once he took over and stuff, like, they really could have played that up, especially if they had a, a from her point of view, you know. But they never went there. And then to find out that all of that was completely not in the story anywhere, it's kind of like, man, another missed opportunity. Like, let's not gloss this over. you got a lot of cool character moments here. Let's, you know, flesh them out. Yeah, like I said, my, my main problem um, is – like well, this isn't a, a, a problem, but um, it's like you have such a high diversity. They're really trying to push the diversity of the characters here, but still, two of your main characters are old white guys, and I'm like, how did this happen? That you have this super huge diversity quotient in these stories, and yet you still ended up with two white guys as the main characters of these books and this series. And I'm like, they could have done that so differently. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, no. I feel that. All right, so... We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. So when we jump into this one... Man, there was some stuff going on with Roe that didn't make sense. You know, like I was I was wondering if we were going to get some delivery on it later. Uh, we get this D girl who's kind of working for him. He's like replacing Niall, but doing it secretly. Like and when I look back on it, I was thinking, OK, like that, that could be one way to consolidate your power. But I don't understand why he's being so secretive about everything. Like he's he paranoid. Really doesn't want. Yeah, I mean, to a to a whole new degree. And like the only thing I could think of is is he's like in that last part of his plan to consolidate all power over the Nile. I mean, he is pretty much knocked the Tempest Runners all out of their positions. Uh, Lorna D is is the face of the the Nile at this point The you know, <laughs> they're all hunting her down. So he's able to move in the shadows, but he is still you know, going out of his way to turn the ships that he's he's flying all into, you know, and or robots. The droids are all running it all. He doesn't want any people on the ship. Um, even the people that he puts on the mission to the station, like before they go, he takes their wives and anybody that knows them and sends them off on their own mission. I'm like, that didn't make too much sense to me. Like, I'm just like, dude, no one's going to care that you sent them on a special mission. So what? Like, why would you have to make it so secret? <laughs> I was waiting for something more to be explained to me as to the secret, but it wasn't. It was yeah, just I, him being creepy. I think it's him just being paranoid. Like he he um he's really not trusting anybody to the point where his ship, uh, the Gaze Electric, is has only other one other person on it, not including um I guess we're in the spoiler section, so not including the uh uh, the senator. Um, oh, what's her name? Um, uh, it's Stelos. Yes, I think. I think. Um, 
I, 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 her, I'm blanking on her name. So uh, I'll have to look that up. But it, she's the only other one and his assistant who are on this ship. And so he is being paranoid to the extreme. And what you were saying about uh, Lorna D being the main focus, uh, that we see in the main Marvel comic series. And it actually takes place concurrently with the beginning of this book to the point where they do capture Lorna D and are taking her back and they arrive during oh here's the big spoiler starlight beacon don't get blown up uh but they do it in such a way that it takes two-thirds of the book to blow up and so almost the entire the fallen star is this station being blown up and that's what my one sentence description is. What happens in the fallen star? Well, they done blown up uh, Starlight <laughs> Beacon. And that's really the story. <laughs> yeah. And the way that they did it, the way the Nile seeded their sabotage was cool. Um, I like the way that played out. There was even a moment where when the Jedi are picking, because like, as this starts, the Jedi have been feeling in the Force something is wrong, but none of them have really put two and two together like they should be doing something about it. They're all just like, oh, I got this feeling. Don't feel good. I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're just like, dude, this isn't going to work out well. You guys like pay attention to what's going on. And as they start to pay attention, I think it's Orla mainly, she sees, uh, oh, what the heck was that guy's name? The, the D-bag that hated, uh, oh, gosh, I got it here somewhere. All right. To answer my question of the um, the, the the politician uh, was Staros was her last name. Staros. Gira yes. Staros. Yes. Lynn. Lynn was the guy. Okay. So that Lynn dude that uh, knew what's his butt, the Matthew McConaughey character, Lux. Oh yeah. Uh, he he uh, he was talking to the Nile and he's trying to to blackmail him, and when Orla looks over. She assumes he's what's giving her the vibe. Totally doesn't catch that it's the three Nihal that are with him. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's so close. Uh, my favorite part is that he is such a hate, like a, you hate this character so much. And he's brand new to this book and he's just there to make you hate him. And it, it's like, it works out so well. Because you do hate him. You want to see him die. And he dies in the most fantastical way possible. <laughs> yeah. I And I, I think that Gray did a real good job of using Lux to introduce Coley. Leox. Um, Leox. Leox Jossie. Yeah, Leox. And we get the all right, all right, all right moment. Um, yes. <laughs> we definitely got a lot more Matthew McConaughey references. Like, if you didn't know that's who he was based off of before this book, it's pretty obvious now. And it's super fun because uh, listening to the audiobooks, uh, Mark Mark Thompson um, does a Matthew McConaughey impression whenever he's talking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Though at the same time, I got to say, I'm not a fan of how the audiobooks have Marky on row talking. I'm just like, dude, like he's, he's very whiny and he pauses a lot between words. And I'm just like, this doesn't work for me. You <laughs> don't sound like a villain. You sound too emo to be scary. 
Actually, a hundred percent. That's you're right. Uh, this is exactly what he sounds like, and that's uh, he has the same because that's the Mark Thompson is the one who did um, uh, Pans and uh, Markion's voices in the Tempest Runner audio drama as well. Mm-hmm. That's a I guess that's their go to uh, uh, voice for him. Is you're right. It's kind of a breathy uh, emo type sound i i also liked how gray got into different characters and how they look at the force um you know stelos we see how you know he looks at it as a you know the stars and space and you know everybody perceives it differently uh but when we get to man's character man has he's kind of like on a sabbatical kind of thing like you know he he got into some darkness and there's this great moment where he goes i've begun drawing upon the dark side for my strength in the force Elzar had not turned, nor did he feel he was close to turning. This was not a way of life for him. He still believed all the good and all the true lessons that he learned from Yoda as a youngling, then as a Padawan from his wise master, Roland Quarry. But anger was unavoidable. Fear was unavoidable. Extreme circumstance creates extreme emotions. Denying them served no purpose. Why not use them? Many weeks of meditation later, Elzar still felt the questions were valid. However, he'd also come to the realization that every Sith Lord in history had probably asked the exact same questions until the darkness held them completely in his grip. Where do you draw the line? Elzar asked himself. You don't know. You can't know. And that's why you can't travel down that path at all. I really enjoyed the moments where we got into the characters' heads. And Grey has always done a real good job of those kind of moments of getting into the character's head, but doing it in a way that really just explores that character and helps you understand how they perceive things in, in a way that makes them alive. And I love it. Yeah. I love like Gray's writing is like, there's a reason that she is one of the uh, best star Wars authors to date, like including legends. Like she, she is absolutely fantastic. And I, I love how she sets up a lot of things, but it's not, obvious it's not like she's obviously setting up things like i had mentioned um uh what i'm really bad with names and i'm sorry um what was the um the not bad guy but the pain in the ass guy oh Uh, coley lynn yeah so um how he died was basically he shot geode and way before this even happened, um, he same character, Coley Lynn, shoots the magnetic field of the doors and the bullet goes bouncing around the station because it's magnetically sealed and it hits Geode. And it basically just dissolves in the Geode and they make a comment. It's like, oh, well, Ge- Geode can magnetically seal himself or not, depending on what he like. He, he's a giant rock he could do what he wants and so they made a point of pointing that out exactly and so when coley lynn shoots geode he magnetically sealed himself and bounced the bullet back and killed him it was like you set this up like so perfectly and it it, it was like um oh leox at the end of the story um, is saved by a parachute because he doesn't like technology. And it's throughout the whole story that we get like his hate, his dislike, not really hatred, but just dislike and distrust of technology. Yeah, lack of trust, especially. Yeah. 
it's like it serves his purposes through this whole thing because he's able to do so much more than anybody else because everybody else is locked out of the technology, but he isn't limited. And so it's uh, mm-hmm. it, it's fascinating how she sets these things up and that you don't even realize it at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even like chapter 10, like we start, she starts setting up the seeds for the big trap. Like in a lot of ways, I feel like this book feels the way uh, Revenge of the Sith, when the way the novelization was wrote. I feel like, you know, this is just a big trap and the Jedi are completely hosed because like chapter 10 is just awesome. Starlight Beacon was not the only place in the galaxy where the Jedi offered refuge for those recently attacked by the Nile. Some temples in and near the frontier lands opened their doors as well. No instructions went out from the Council on Coruscant dictating this. The decision was spontaneous, echoed by one Jedi Master after another across vast stretches of space. Those who needed help, those who sought protection and assistance in dangerous times, would find it among the Jedi. One such temple stood on the thickly forested world of Kespi, Just within the border of the space newly sworn by the Republic, it was a temple of considerable age, one that was how one that had housed a small contingent of the Jedi for many generations. In some ways, the practices and customs of the Jedi Knights were differing. They were independent and private, and preferred it so, but not in their willingness to provide help for those who needed it. So, on that day, the golden-roofed Kespi Temple, normally surrounded by nothing but kilometers of woodland and birdsong, instead was circled by tents and and makeshift shelters through which mild nearly hundred people of various species and civilizations. In the few nearby clearings were parked carbon-scored, battered ships, the crafts that had struggled so hard to reach the place of refuge. Yet the scene was peaceful in its way, the calm before the storm. High in orbit, a Nile cloud leader nodded at the schematics as they zoomed in, tighter and tighter, until the temple's gold roof shone bright as a bullseye. Don't bother with the ships, he said. An underling who had not yet learned her place ventured, but if the goal is to cause damage and confusion, to leave them unclear of our intentions. That was only the first wave of our efforts, the cloud leader snapped. This wave is about sending a message to the Jedi. From now on, they'll know. This is about them. So Markeon Roe had commanded. So it should be. Those on the surface of Kespi at first believed that the swirling shapes far overhead must have been a flock of birds. But the comfort illusion vanished within seconds. Moans of dismay turned into shrieks of panic as people jumped up, ran for the ships, or simply dashed into the woods of nearby to search for some place, any place to hide. Otherwise, they would surely be mowed down by the Nile's mercilessly assault. But none of these travelers were in any danger. The head of the temple, Master Imgri, looked up and for the first time in her life said the words, Call Coruscant. Her Padawan nodded. And tell them we're under attack? Imgri shook her head. The Force had already told her what was near. Tell them we're gone. The Padawan hesitated for only a momentarily before bravely doing what he was told. He had not been finished more than one breath before the Nile fire blasted through the golden roof, incinerating everyone and everything inside until the Kespi Temple was no more. And I mean, that's a great moment, but it's a chess piece. They're doing this across the galaxy, right? All these Jedi temples are offering up refuge, and now the Nile are showing up above every one of them, and they're only targeting the Jedi temples. So once they're done and they leave, all those refugees are now flocking to Starlight. 
they're all collecting there like there's they're they've baited starlight to make it this they fatten the pig for slaughter dude i love it i just the way claudia gray sets this up is just brilliant and the so we also get um beside mark Row, we have three nile on the station and they're, I think you had mentioned, they're systematically damaging the station over the first about third of this book. And so this third, first third of this book is truly a suspenseful thriller, almost a horror story, because of one aspect is these Nile taking apart the station. And my favorite part about that is that these three Nile are intermixing with the groups on the station and they're acting all nonchalant. And you have, of these three, a Powin of what we see from Revenge of the Sith from Utapau, and an Ithorian. And so it's like you're two, two of your most um, like noticeable species are just acting nonchalant in like the parts of the station they're not supposed to go. It's like, um, I think I noticed you before and you're not supposed to be here. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. So I do think we should bring up what the other like big threat on the station is that does get seated fairly early and really covers the length of the entire book. I honestly, I misinterpreted when they brought him on at first because... They bring up Raft here, and I thought at first that there were two ships with Raft here, and I didn't realize that one of them wasn't actually with Raft here at all. <laughs> like, oh. Well, that was the that was the thing is that they brought it on and says it was Raft a Raft Raft. Um, uh, it says it was those, um, but it wasn't because nobody wants to go poking around in that ship. So it was kind of a um, a ruse, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was brilliant, too, because there actually was a second ship that did have Rathar, and those actually get out at one point. You're like, oh, my God, all hell is breaking loose. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. Um, and it was, they assumed it wasn't because it's like, well, clearly it doesn't have, the first one didn't, so the second one won't. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, the other side of the Nile is we also see that Chancy Yarrow and Nan have been taken prisoner. And, you know, Nan's claiming, you know, I left the Nile and all this. And I, I liked how their position in the story made them wild cards because they're not really with the Nile at this point, but yet they kind of still side with the Nile. And so as their story plays out, they have an interestingly integral role with the fall of the station by the book's end. And I thought that was a brilliant way of setting it all up because, you know, Chansey, we've known she was a brilliant scientist and stuff from when she was introduced and Nan, Nan's just trying to stay alive. So like Nan plays her character perfectly throughout this, but Chansey was fun because like the audio character that the, the, the way that Mark Thompson played Chansey. I really enjoyed that. I wasn't expecting that accent, but it worked. <laughs> but when I read her, she's just so condescending. And I just, I absolutely love the way she's like, you know, lashing out at Nan nonstop or lashing out at the other Nile that are around her and stuff and looking down on everybody. You're like, dude, this, this girl, like what's going to happen with her? But you know, she don't, she don't make it long, but she goes out in a way that is great. Like when we get to that moment at the end and, and she ends up 
passing away, so to speak. I don't want to give too much details because we'll come back around to that moment. It's a big moment. But, man, the way that she almost saved the day was like, no, no, no. It got to the point where I started to think the fallen star might have been man himself. I was like, dude, is this guy going to go full dark side? Because his struggle from the beginning of the book through the end of the book and the way that his sabbatical has played into what he's doing. He's not using the force. He has removed himself from the force. So when those creatures are affecting the force, he's not feeling it. So at one point, Orla's like, you know, continue to do what you're doing. You're probably the only one here that can handle this. And like the internal struggle that he's going with and the decisions he's making as it goes along. I'm like, Oh my God, man, you're like so close to having an Anakin Skywalker moment, dude. Well, he um, used force lightning to blow up something in the last book. In the rising right. storm, that's why he was off on his sabbatical for this, the beginning of this book, as anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, like we were saying, the um, the, the mysterious creatures uh, are which killed Loden Great Storm, turned him into a rock, uh, not like Geode, um, a, a husk. They were calling yeah. it the um, dust husk. They, they call him the nameless. In this, because they they don't they don't have a name, but they also in the tale Trail of Shadows they do get a name of the Shrikarai or something. I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's a uh, um, it's weird. Like the entire Trail of Shadows is about these creatures, and it's kind of a uh, weird how they kind of get around where the name comes from or how they get there. So I'm just going to call them the nameless uh, because I ain't pronouncing that again. (laughs) Right. But they have a big impact on this book. And like I said, this is a essentially like a thriller, suspenseful horror book. And we have a lot of deaths, a lot of deaths by the end of it. And I found it hilarious when I was going through the book, the First death. Do you remember who the first person to die in the book was? Uh, wasn't it the comedian kid? Was yes, it, the, the it was Jedi Reginald Call, the comedian Jedi, who was first introduced in this book. And when he dies, I'm literally thinking, so we're just gonna we're gonna kill off characters that just get introduced in this book to die. <laughs> so that's what we're gonna do. Um, and I was I was like I, I was kind of annoyed that this is who we're killing. Um, but that quickly changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I got to admit, though, uh, when Nan and uh, Chansey get busted out, because the Niles see them, recognize who Nan is, and they decide, you know, hey, we'll bust them out. You know, we can use them as a distraction if we need to, or they can help us, which they do before they realize what's going on and what the, these guys are doing. And it's in Chapter uh, 16 where that happens. Chansey wipes soot from her face. I suggest you find another place to relax. They'll have a team up here within minutes. Doubtful, Cal replied. Our preparations lasted for days, and I assure you, we've taken care of everything. One way or another, we have compromised every system on this station, save for the most obscure entertainment systems, retrofit backup systems, and the like. We've taken over communications. We've powered down independent energy cells. We've even closed off the lifts. Travel through the station will be difficult, if not impossible. And the Jedi and the Republic will be too busy keeping themselves alive to worry about the cause of the explosion. And they even rigged things to look like they're functioning and not functioning. 
So like certain things that aren't functioning show that they're functioning. And then like the escape pods show that they're not functioning, but they are functioning. So no one would use them. Like it's just brilliant the way that they went about it. And of course it's all Rose plan. So, you know, I've been saying from the start that, you know, Rose got to do something here to really kind of step it up. And we're seeing that it's not him revealing that he's a Sith Lord. Like I was hoping, but he's definitely doing stuff. And it makes me think like, if he's not attached to the Sith, maybe we'll see Niall show up again down the road in a, in a later era where someone brings back, you know, that group. Like, hey, let's, uh, you know, resurrect an, an old group of badasses that took the Jedi down. You know, maybe Ray has to fight some new Niall or something down the road. <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, yeah, you're uh, Nan, her, her inclusion in this and... Um, Oh, who was the uh, the scientist? What's her name? Oh, Chancey Yarrow. Yeah, Chancey Yarrow. Them together really is an interesting, you're right, wild card in this whole thing because they are just going with the winds. They're like, yeah, we'll go with the Nile. We don't want to help them, but we like. I really don't care. I just want to get off this stupid station. Mm-hmm. And then when they realize what is going on, what the Nile are doing, and that they have no intentions of leaving – uh, they're like, yeah, we're gonna need to fix this and get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we're out. <laughs> you guys go on. We're gonna go over here, and like, and then they have to extract themselves in a way that doesn't like give away what they're doing. <laughs> so I think the next after Reginald's death, we had, I think, the biggest impact. Um, so far in the story was Orla Jereni kind of went off and did the exact same thing as Reginald. They go off on by themselves. Several of the Jedi mm-hmm. do this. They go off by themselves and they end up dead um, mm-hmm. or, or close to dead. Because I, I remember, um, I think uh, Bell's new master, Bell's new master. She did not die. No. And, and, and Stelos, Stelos also had a, a run in where he didn't die, but it definitely impacted him. Yeah, but Orla Jereni definitely gets killed, which was huge because she was a major character in this series so far. Mm-hmm. And when she died, it was kind of like, okay, I guess we're going to do this. Like, we're going to, like, nobody is safe at this point. Right. And that moment when I'm in, where I'm at in Midnight Horizons, uh, that's where Comac's like, I, I'm going to Starlight. I'm leaving right now. Like, he. You know, this is that moment in the timelines. You can tell where they line up. And, of course, Kintam's like, you can't, like, we can't help them right now. We got stuff here going on. And that's, like, the big trap that Roe put out. Like, you know, the Jedi are everywhere right now. Like, he's he's got things happening in the core with, like, Corellia. All these other temples have all been attacked. So, aid's being sent over there. So, like, the Republic forces are spread out. All the refugees are all clustered on the station and all hell is breaking loose. I love there's a, a moment uh, where we learn what's happened on the station. And it says uh, what they were seeing was barely recognizable, a starlight beacon. The middle of the station had been rendered no more than a glowing blur. Normally, scans would have shown starlight lit up with power in every wall on every level. But instead, large sections of the station had gone all but completely dark. The medical tower wasn't the only thing working solely under emergency lights. Worst of all, to Bell's eyes, 
was the darkness around the dark docking bays. Without those, it would be impossible to evacuate the patients. And that was the thing. It's like the docking bays are locked down in a way that they can't get out. So all these people are like trying to, you know, they're loading up in their ships ready to go and the doors won't open. Everybody is trapped and the station is falling. Uh, it's going to take three hours for the Republic to send any help. The station only has two. And that's that's from the get go. It, like that starts being very apparent within the first like three or four or five chapters. And from there, it just gets worse. Everything just keeps piling on top of it all. And people start dying. I mean, even Bell at one point says, no, we don't split up, man. Haven't you seen those those scary horror hollows? Like, <laughs> yeah, and then he still ends up splitting up. I'm like, oh, my God, no, don't do it, dude. <laughs> yeah, they um like. So with the the station itself is the way they destroyed the station is they basically separated the top from the bottom um, to a point where it actually physically separated uh, towards the end of the book. And that's where the top part we don't see in this book. That's where we you kind of get um, a little bit in the comic series. But uh, the, the bottom section is where almost every character in uh, the High Republic that... Um, that's in this book is there and uh like bell and biriaga Buryaga are kind of running around together um to different places and you're right i, I love the that's uh that's the horror movie uh aspect you don't want to do that and sure enough like they're getting killed left and right right and that's the one thing about phase two being a prequel that kind of bothers me because like we have this great culmination of the story and i want to know what next and we're going to have to wait a lot longer to find out. <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned, the Rathars, Buryaga goes to confront that Bell, like, I think it was Bell that released them. Yeah, on accident. Bur- yeah, and Buryaga is basically holding them off, and he goes missing. Yeah. We never see that, Buryaga at the end. We don't that, know what happened to him. That tore me up because, like, Bell is convinced that he lived and at one point tries to go back to the station and, and, you know, feels what's going on. Um, you know, you had two different names for, uh, the, the aliens. I was calling them the nullifiers because I was under the impression that they were the nullifier that, uh, Roe was going for in some of the earlier books. And I don't know if that was or wasn't the case. Like maybe the nullifier was something else, but I don't know. Like that when, Burry ends up attacking those Rathars. It's a great moment because they've got two uh, docking bays on each side, basically like on the left and the right side of the station. And they open all the corridors between them so they can fly all the single ships, uh, single pilot ships through the station. And everyone else that isn't taking a single ship is walking through the station to get to the other ships. But they've got these Raptors that Bell accidentally let loose in between. And so, like, they're doing their thing. And, yeah, when, when Burry goes at it, like, there's a scene where he extends his, his Wookiee claws to full length. And he's, like, shredding them and stuff. And he tells, uh, man, he's like, you know, tell Bell bye. Like, he knows he's going down. And that, dude, that that tore me up because, like, I wasn't ready for Burry. Because even Burry's master ends up falling to the, uh, the nullifiers. Like, they turn her to Ash, too. And I'm yep. just like. Man, like, I really like those characters. And from the beginning, they felt like they would be, you know, around for a good long time. And now now it's questionable. Um, you know, Bell really thinks that Burry got off the station. I I don't know, man. I don't know how he could have. I would assume that he did. 
based on that. Because mm-hmm. why would you make a like clearly this is going to be a continuing story thread. Why mm-hmm. would you make a story thread that literally goes to, oh yeah, he's just dead? <laughs> like that it seems um excessive. Um also right. really painful for uh Bell, who lost his master, thought he was dead, turns out he wasn't dead, then watched him die in front of his eyes. Uh right. that, <laughs> so um Bell and that is, weighs on him too. He's like, I'm not leaving you behind. And I'm just like, go back for him, man. Go back for the Wookiee. <laughs> well, the reason that he can't go back for Buryaga is the entire station crashes. And that's the like the end point of this whole destruction is that it gets pulled into the planet that it's orbiting, which I had mentioned that we kind of got hints of um, Mission to Disaster before this. In Mission to Disaster, they found out that the Starlight Beacon can actually move through hyperspace, but the hyperdrives aren't active yet. They kind of skipped that. And so they tow the station to a planet. I think Dolna is the, the planet that they go to in that book. But then after that book, they move the station again to the planet that they are at here. And so that's why it's because originally Starlight Beacon's in the middle of nowhere, being a right. beacon in the middle of nowhere. Well, here now they're using it as a um, an aid. And so they move the entire station to this planet to render aid, uh, only to find out that it will be the last place this uh, station goes to. Mm-hmm. Because as it's going down, it's going down towards a city, too. Yeah. Yeah, right. Populated spot. Uh, there was a great moment when Elzar finally does open up in the force. Uh, he gets to the center of the station as it's about to be ripped in two. And as he uh, opens up, it goes, a shiver traveled along his spine. Whatever was disturbing the Jedi's connection to the force was strong here. He shut down. No more force. No more Jedi powers. They could only harm him now. And the station had no time. He didn't require the force to get the work done. And he had to get the hell out. <laughs> like... Because he's at the at, at this point for him, he's going down into the main part of the station to try to turn the thrusters back on. Um, he's on his way down there, which of course is where Chancy and Nan are going because Chancy's going to do the same thing. But, Chancy has the skills to actually do it, and it's probably right. one of the only ones there who could. Yeah, exactly, and and that makes you know everything that's going on with Elzar is so tragic because he's not using the force for legitimately obvious reasons but maybe had he been using the force there at the end he would have recognized what she was trying to do instead of what he assumed she was doing because that would have been messed up well we already know they are essentially the bad guys we assume even the characters are assuming that they're with the nile because the nile broke them out of the the jail cells and so they're already assuming that they're with the nile and then when he sees her messing with the thrusters uh, he uh, he doesn't stop and think. No, no, he he goes. I mean, he basically goes full dark side. He and what's really tragic about it is he strikes her down, kills her, and then stands there and processes what just happened. And unfortunately, she had fixed it. If he would have just reached out and hit the button, everything would have been saved. And that, it was like talk about salt in the wound, man. And and. I don't know about you, but Elzer Mann, all throughout this book, kept reminding me of Corinne Horn. I'm just like, there's something about the way he decides it's up to me. I'm like, yep, that to- that's a total Corinne moment. <laughs> I can see that, yeah. 
he like his character arc in this book is interesting um especially when you get to the end and he basically regressed he let his emotions out um killing uh chancy in the most horrific man like that's the most horrific part of this whole book is he sliced her in half with his lightsaber and it just ended up like that had a major toll not only on his psychology psychological psycho brain brain stuff um <laughs> but also on stellan mm-hmm. and i i don't know do we want to go into stellan at this point yeah it's a good i mean he's because after he ran into the nullifiers it really messed with him i mean he was almost crippled um you know, he was like almost lobotomized. He was like just, just sitting in a pile. Like, what the hell is going on with you, bro? <laughs> yeah. So he, yeah, Selen kind of gets knocked out for the majority of the book, or not? Yeah, actually, not the majority. Maybe like the last third of the book, he kind of gets knocked out because he his interaction with the nameless, um, where he didn't get turned to a husk, but um, serious again brain stuff. He kind of comes back. And goes to do what he was doing before, which was work on the thrusters of the station. He doesn't know what's going on down there. And he goes down there just to find that um, Elzar had basically ruined any any chance of them uh, saving themselves. They're going to hit the city. Selen is the only one who can um, do anything. And so he manages the adjust the trajectory of the station so at least it doesn't hit the city but he needs to stay there to do it yeah I, there was a great line he had too where he goes i know who i am and i'm like oh man like and i think that was the rough thing for me was like there were certain characters that by this point i actually i was pulling for him i didn't want to see him end up passing away i was like, damn it <laughs> yeah and we do lose by the end of the book or right at the end of the book selling goes down with the station and the interesting thing about that, like, you know, some people be like, well, why didn't the planetary people end up just shooting up and, and killing everyone? And there is a great reason for that. And that's one of the queens. Uh, let's see. That was a major plot thread, though. They they kept bringing up the planetary people going, why don't we just shoot it up? Yeah. Uh, let's see. She said. It was it was Queen uh, Thandika who had argued most strongly to give the Jedi time, and Dima had trusted her. At this point, however, doubts were starting to creep into Dima's mind. Doubts Thandika was beginning to share. As much as Thandika trusted the Republic, as greatly as she honored the Jedi, she knew their gifts had limits. How long until impact, she said. The defense minister replied, approximately 45 minutes, but we only have another 10 to 15 minutes to shoot them down. After that, we'll simply be scattering debris on a far wider field. Queen Thinketa's shoulders slumped. She thought of the faces of the Jedi that she had come to know over the past few weeks. How many of them were lost already? How many were about to fall? Then Queen Dimas turned to her, saying, We cannot do this. The defense minister's face fell. Your majesty, your majesty, how can we not? It is as I said before, she rose to her feet, looking into each advisor in their eyes in turn. We will not use the kind of euphemism, preventative action, to justify killing. 
Did anyone on this planet not know of the Nile before? Had anyone failed to learn that Starlight Beacon was one of their targets? Yet, we invited Starlight here when we needed assistance, when it suited us. Our planet accepted those risks when we accepted the Republic help. And we will not allow the Nile to turn us into murderers. And, I mean, that's a, a deep philosophical moral pondering that they have. You know, do we shoot that station down to save thousands, if not millions of lives or not? And, you know, and, and she lays it out there in the most basic way. Look, they had our back. We need to have our back. And, and we need to trust that they're going to be able to do something. And in the end, that's what Stellan does. Stellan provides the action that she believed the Jedi could do. And, and it allows the station to basically glide over the last city and crash into the ocean. Um, so he was successful. One of the things, though, that we were also talking about pre-show that I, I, I want to touch on. I was confused, and it sounded like you were too. There's a moment where Roe talks about he had sent seven saboteurs to the station, but we only ever see the three. Uh, and Jim, you had an answer to that. So, yeah, a friend of mine had that exact same question. Uh, and as we got on the call, you're like, I have a question. It says there's seven, but we only see three. And I'm like, yes, I know the answer to that because I had read the comics right after I read the book. And there are more Nile in the upper part of the station that we do not see in this book. And so there, I don't. they didn't specifically call out how many were up there, but um, I'm guessing four <laughs> on my math. Yeah, and that's the side of the thing that I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, like, you know, the whole top station, um, the Axion or, or Axitar, whatever, the, the Jedi ship docks with the top half. And you're like, OK, you know, we're going to get to see some of these point of views and stuff. No, we don't know. Avar shows up. We don't ever really get to see anything from her. Uh, you know, Maru, everything that he's doing, these other Niles, like the whole top of the station. We don't ever see any of that. Um, in fact, the closest we get is at one point, uh, Barry and Bell crawl through the collapse center and get to the medical tower, which becomes also a big plot point for Bell, which splits him up from Barry. He has to go back to uh, try to get the people off. They actually get a message out to the planet below in that moment, and that's how the planet realizes something's going on outside of the fact that the station is just starting to get larger and larger in the atmosphere. But, you know, we were talking about when Bell was going back to the station and then decided not to. There was a great moment there where I felt like the force was at play. Uh, you know, he's he's flying back over towards the station because he had gotten out. Uh, what he had done was he had rigged a bomb at the bottom of the medical tower to basically get the tower to launch itself into space to buy the tower and everybody that couldn't be transported out time to be picked up later because if he got them off the station before they that it got pulled into the gravity as well they'd just be floating in space and could be picked up at whenever he was successful um so now he's outside he's on a little shuttle coming back and he says seen from outside what remained of starlight beacon looked even more broken and doomed than bell would have expected and he'd expected it to be bad but his eyes widened as he took in the full horror. The bent, broken metal beams jabbed upward from the broken, ugly beak. The few standing walls from the break level revealed where rooms and people had been. The forbidding darkness of the station, largely illuminated only by the emergency lights, so that it glowed sickly orange in the dark. Worst of all, the curve of Irm's surface had come to cover almost the entire horizon and Bell could feel subtle resistance for the first traces of the planetary atmosphere. They had so little time. 
He steered the shuttle through the curve of Starlight's hull, directing his full attention toward the cargo bay. Yes, he'd come here to help anyone and everyone he could, but his friend Biryaga remained foremost in his thoughts. Master Stellan had told him enough about Biryaga's disappearance for Bell to know that the odds weren't good. Still, his brain kept su- still his brain kept supplying possible ways for his friend have might have survived. Biryaga could have managed to squeeze through an airlock in the upper level, or he could have gotten to the uh, free of the Rathars in time. He might have been able to put on his atmospheric suit and strap in, which means he would have been sucked into space when the bay doors had opened. If Bell could think of these possibilities, then Biryaga could have too. He brought his shuttle in closer to the hole, and as he approached the cargo bay, within 20 meters, as he did so, Bell felt a tiny shiver of fear. Come on, he told himself. You're a good enough pilot to handle this, which was true, and yet it did nothing to calm his concerns. Instead, it heightened. Something's wrong, he thought, the hair on his arms rising as his heartbeat quickened. It's not supposed to be like this, not like this at all. The shuttle's controls didn't make sense. What was he supposed to be doing? It felt as though the instrument panel changed every time he looked at it, while he was looking at it, and that only made everything scarier. Then another voice inside his head, the one that spoke to him as Master Loden once said, said, get away from this place. Acting on instinct, Bell managed to push the controls enough to steer the shuttle away from Starlight Beacon. Within another hundred meters, the fear had begun to subside. He took deep breaths as he felt the fear growing more distant. Somehow, fear itself had been placed aboard Starlight, and Bell had no doubt that it was the same fear that had killed Orla Jarney, Reginald Cole, and Loden Greatstorm. But what is it? How does it do this? Those were questions that remained and required investigation soon. At this moment, however... Bell was certain of only one thing. He must not return to Starlight. Whatever in there was poisoned to the Jedi, and if he went back, he would only fall prey too. Instead, he'd have to find a way to help from out here. And, I mean, it, it's it's something about those creatures. Like, it's almost like instead of, like, a bubble in the forest that the Asmeri made, they make a bubble of fear. And, like, anything that comes into it is immediately impacted by it. To the point, like, as he started to not feel the instruments and, and couldn't understand them, the same thing happened to everyone else that felt like they, they completely didn't understand what was going on, and it broke them. Yeah, I, I looked up what you were saying before, how they used to call they called it something else in the, the Rising Storm. The Great Leveler, or, or the Leveler, that's what the, that's the creature in... The rising storm that killed Loden Greatstorm, specifically that one, was called the Leveler, which was a member of this nameless species. Then, uh-huh. obviously, Markian Rowe got more of them, which is what we see in the Eye of the Storm comic, and that though that more is what invades the station here. Right, and I guess in a way, like if you if you think about these creatures, these beings being like a force order in a sense you know you got your jedi you got your sith and you got these guys that come in and wipe them all out (laughs) like and and if that one was the great leveler i mean it it does sound like they were used against force users in the past so i mean maybe going back to phase one will be pretty exciting after all but i still want to know more about what's going on with these guys damn it (laughs) yeah well the interesting thing uh to kind of touch on the eye of the storm comic series is that these nameless live on a planet 
that is essentially Force-sensitive. The planet? Yes. Wait, so they made Zenoma Sakat? <laughs> That's what it seems like. Interesting. Okay. Man, I got to start reading the comics and getting caught back up, man. I'm I'm behind. I admit. I'm way behind. <laughs> I've I've been playing catch up, and I, I, as far as I'm aware, I'm almost fully caught up. Um, I, I still I have one comic that I haven't read uh, in my stack here, uh, the Great Galactic Bake Off, um, <laughs> which there's a reason it's still in my stack. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit, but I, Leox's character and uh, Geode, and you know, even. Uh, Effie. What the heck is uh, yeah, Effie, Effie. There, there's a whole thing with Leox wanting to leave, but not wanting to leave Effie because he knows Effie's not going to leave her ship, the vessel behind. Um, so you know, there's they've got to stay along with her. There's this whole running joke about one of the other smugglers' wives having a crush on Lux, or not Lux, but uh, uh, having Geode. a crush on Geode. Yeah, and I mean, and, and Geode sneaking off like there's this whole thing. Like you're like, what in the hell is this rock doing? Like, what could this rock be doing to a human woman? Like, <laughs> this I, I, is wrong on so many levels. Actually, they're not smugglers. They're the technicians from uh, the Fallen Star, not Fallen Star, uh, Light of the Jedi, the first book. Joss, Adrian, right. and Pika, um, Adrian. So they're the the technicians that helped uh, with the the rescue in the first one. Right. Uh, So as they're all going on, what I thought was really cool at the very end, right? So uh, Leox's character and Finn, we find out how the two of them had a rivalry and stuff. Well, Finn is the captain of the Ace of Staves. And, you know, Leox was the captain. Staves. The Ace of Staves, yes. Uh, And Lux, Leox was the captain of the vessel at one point. And now by the time this story ends... We still have a rivalry between ship captains of those two ships because Affy is captaining the vessel and Nan has the ace. And the two of them are rivals again because of everything that was going on on the station. So I was like, I was like that's kind of cool. Like, you know, a promise of more drama to come down the road. <laughs> yeah, I do really like really everyone on the vessel because it is our one of our few glimpses into non-force users, blah, blah, non-force users in the book mm-hmm. and even in the series as a whole is like we don't get many instances like besides the Nile of people who don't use the force and these are kind of our uh, our non-force user perspectives and yeah Leox is just a fantastic character and Geode is literally the best character ever made not mm-hmm. that I'm biased <laughs> You know, and, and when uh, Bell launches the medical tower with the explosion, it's in that same moment that Coley Lynn's planned explosive goes off, and he springs his plan into action as well. I, and that guy was just so, you know, he doesn't care. He'll jeopardize everyone to be able to do what he wants. And I kept thinking, like, man, this just feels like a certain commentary on the whole mask situation with COVID. You know, yeah. certain people just didn't want to comply. They wanted to do what they wanted. They didn't care who they put at risk. Like, And he kind of came across that way to me. Like, it didn't matter. As long as he got what he wanted, he didn't care what was going on with anyone else. <laughs> well, one of the funniest things is that how does Leox save everyone? 
by doing exactly the same thing that Coley Lynn did, just (laughs) timing it differently so that people didn't get hurt and he he just waited. But literally, he did the exact same thing that uh, Coley Lynn was doing. Right. So if if Coley Lynn would have just played with everyone, came forward and told everyone his stuff... It might have turned out differently, but no, he immediately started plotting. But I, I felt like the plotting also had to do with him hating uh, Leox's character so much. Like, I, I liked how we learned about their time on a ship in their past and how Lux accidentally said something that got uh, Finn, uh, Lynn in trouble. And so Lynn had always hated him after that. And it just the rivalry well, just kept he was growing stealing. and growing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't oh, yeah. like he had a, a minor s- disagreement. Leox said, "You probably shouldn't be doing that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it did get worse for him as it went. It was, <laughs> but yeah, Leox is always there and always, you know, doing something to get Coley all mad. So then Coley just went out of his way to make Lux's life a, a royal hell as often as he could. It was great. So I don't know. It's been a couple months since I read the book. I, I don't think I have much else to say. Yeah, there's just one last spot I wanted to touch on. And that was, I think it's this one right here. Uh, when Bell was feeling Burry in the force, uh, when Burry was being attacked by the Rathars, uh, Bell Zedifar lifted his head. One of Irma's medics looked at him curiously. Are you all right? She asked. I'm fine, he insisted. It's Master Indira who needs your help. The Force told him that Biryaga was in trouble aboard Starlight Beacon. It was as though Bell could feel his friend's desperation. The wild need to lash out in every direction at once. What was happening? No way to know. No way to go to Biri's aid. And I mean, I just... I I really came to like that Wookiee. <laughs> in that moment when he is trying to lash out in all directions at once. Like, I've got claustrophobia because of when I was younger... I did something really stupid. Um, My dad had this massive, massive steel desk that he got from OSHA. He worked at home. And him and my mom went out one night. Me and my sister were at the house. I was watching my sister. She was like 11. So I was about 14. And they had gotten a new TV. And this TV box was about a half inch thick cardboard. And the bottom was stapled. And somehow I had this stupid idea in my head that I could fit that box underneath my dad's desk where the legs of your chair would go. So I took the box, turned it upside down, took the top that would have been open and did that overlap fold that you do on a box. But I did it by lifting myself up. So now the the top is below me and I had an inch and I I slid myself into that gap thinking I'm going to kick this box open, right? And I go and I get the the box all the way underneath the desk, perfectly flush with it, which took me forever because I only had a a little box gap of carpet that I could slide myself in. And then I got there and I yelled to my sister, okay, I'm going to kick it out. I couldn't. The box was so thick. I couldn't kick it out. So I'm kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking. And I got no air coming in because the hole is below me and I'm now shoved in this thing. And I'm screaming to my 11-year-old sister to go get a knife to cut through the box. And she's refusing to because she doesn't want to get a a knife and cut me. I was trapped in there for 30 minutes just, I mean, literally screaming. Like, ah, you know, kicking, trying to stand up in this box. (laughs) Couldn't. And so afterwards, like, you get me into a tight place and stuff and I, I start to panic. So, of course, you know, I go caving to try to, you know, combat that fear. But when that panic comes on... 
the way that it's described about Burial to trying to just lash out in every direction at once, dude, that totally hit home for me. And I'm just like, to be that Wookiee in that moment, you know, you're fighting off this thing and the station opens up. And in that moment, like, I don't know if he lived, man. I, I can't see him living. Although Bell seems to think it, and I want him to live, but damn, did, did Claudia Gray write it in a way that was just tragic. <laughs> yes. Um, not as tragic as your little sister potentially stabbing you to get you out of a cardboard <laughs> box that you locked yourself into. <laughs> On this episode of Growing Up Herleman. <laughs> <laughs> So on the murder podcast today. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you know, and like, I'm trying now to think without looking at my show, I was like, once it's all done, like, the book kind of really wraps up pretty fast. Like, you know, we, we see some of the senator doing her stuff with Roe. We see Roe kind of congratulating himself. Uh, we learn that Affy sees that Leox didn't die, that he actually had survived. I'm glad um, that they, because that was also a, a semi-mystery at the end of the book. Like, what happened to Leox? He got sucked right? out the uh, the door. Um he did manage to parachute himself to safety, but it was like one of the same as Buriaga. It's like, what you did not kill the ox. Like, right. I, and I, and the way they played everything up between him and Coley, I was like, Oh, they probably did. You know, it's like, it, it was like the walking dead. You're like, well, we gave just enough attention to this character. He's dead. Yeah. So like, um, I, I'd say like this book, the, if you just look at the adult novels of, the High Republic so far. We have Light of the Jedi, The Rising Storm, and The Fallen Star here. Uh, the pace of this book is dramatically different than the other two. The other two have a kind of like a lightning fast breakneck pace. Uh, Light of the Jedi is for the first half of it. Rising Storm is for the second half of it. This book is much slower. Much, much slower. The entire book almost, two-thirds of the book takes place after the station gets blowed up. Um, and the first third is leading up to it. And you have that like um, kind of that, that intense build up to what is happening the jedi know something's happening but what is it we as readers know what it is but they don't yet and so it's it's a very slow book it works for this book right and, it, it that slow build up like you said i felt like like i was choking on the the tension <laughs> yes and it's one of those like you have to keep reading what happens next like what is going to happen and it, it draws you in so well um, that, that you kind of like, you need to, to keep going through the book to find out what happens. And you're right. It wraps up super quick. Uh, the, um, the announcement by Markion at the end where he's like, um, really pissed off at, uh, Gira Staros cause, uh, she said something during his, um, announcement and it kind of goes to show you that this man is, uh, not stable. Right. I, and I liked how she distrusted the droids, like, immediately. <laughs> like, why are you having droids pilot your ship? <laughs> so, and then, like, after the crash of the station, we that's where we get Avar um, back, is that she's there for, like, a, um, a minute to find out that he, uh, Stellan, kind of uh, went down with the ship. Mm-hmm. And really, yeah. it's kind of her fault 
that he did because she was supposed to be there. She wasn't allowed to go off. And so if she was there, like, I I could see her blaming herself for it because she should have been there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I liked the the way when Lux was, uh, Leox was pulled out, the way that played out. Um, As if in reply, as that, as if in reply at that instant, the docking bay doors finally, finally began to open. They slid wider with what seemed like excruciating slowness, but Leox was working with manual controls at what had to be top possible speed. Affy could hardly imagine the effort it took. He had to be giving it his last measure of strength. At last, the doors opened wide enough for Affy to catch a glimpse of Lux. At the angle, his body was just barely visible at the corner of the doors, his loose shirt and dark blonde hair whipping frantically in the wind. Even from here, she could tell how hard he was working. You've got it. You've got it. Affy wasn't even aware she was speaking out loud. Come on, Leox. Get back here. Come on. Get back here and let's go. The first ship to speed out was the Korean pilot, swooping past them to fly free into Irem's sky. A couple of others followed, each one barely squeezing into the narrow opening beyond the bay doors, but making it through nonetheless. Affy's face lit up as she saw Leox beginning to work his way toward the opening. Apparently, he was coming in that way and not through the hole in the side. And then the wind caught him yanking him backwards away from the station. For one moment, it seemed as though Leox hung in the sky before the gales tore him away, flinging him down towards the ground in death. Affy screamed, No! No, no, please, no, please, no! The words kept babbling out of her like as if she had said it enough. Somehow what had happened wouldn't have happened. But Lux was gone. Geode managed to maintain his composure, locked in the coordinates that would take them to safety on the ground. Through tears welling in Affy's eyes, blurring the console, she knew the controls by heart. She punched in the right toggles until the vessel powered up, lifted off, and shot out the doors. The last thing Leox Gussie had ever done was sacrifice his life for his friends, Affy thought. She wouldn't let that sacrifice go to waste. And I mean, dude, at that moment, I I, wouldn't, I didn't think at all he would have survived. And like you said, the, the fact that his distrust of technology is what saved him because he happened to have a parachute on was brilliant <laughs> it's like it, like i said claudia grace sets things up so well that it makes sense it's not like like when he when he like comes down with the parachute or he like walks up behind him and, and it's one of those things like you don't see it as obvious but then after you see it it's obvious it's like one of those like i love that yeah yep yep so, uh, you know, I think we're at that part where we can uh, roll into the follow-up. Um, you know, what would you rate it and the covers? Uh, for me, I'm going, I'm going high on this one. Um, I, you know, I, I want to go really high, but then I know, I know where you're going with it. So I gotta, I gotta kind of, you know, temper my excitement. I'm gonna give it an eight point seven five. Uh, you know, I, I, it's pretty damn high. I want to give it a ten, but I'm not. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little intellectually honest, as Nathan would say, and I'm just gonna go with an eight point seven five. Real solid story. Uh, I like the climax. I I, I like the way that I was choking on my anticipation as I read this book. Like that I, I I love my Star Wars Dark and it delivered. Yep. I actually I gave it in my review an eight point five. Nice. So it was it was definitely a solid story. Seven is average for me. Eight is great, really. 
um, rarely anything higher than an, I, I rarely give higher than an eight. And so an 8.5 is really like a spot on, super enjoyable book. So let's see what StarWars.com has to say about covers real quick, because we have a few. Uh, let's see. So Star Wars, a high Republic fallen star by Claudia Grave arriving January 4th, 2022 will be available at out of print with an exclusive jacket designed by artist uh, Jama. I'm not going to say your last name because I would just butcher it. Jurabev. Uh, Yes, yes, you got it. Uh, this is the cover that gave everything away. If you hadn't seen this cover, you probably didn't know what the story was about. But this one, uh, it was also given with a uh, beanie for life and light that came with it. You also would get a signed by the author, uh, you know, version of the book. But it's got a bunch of the Jedi on one of the islands and they're watching... It's, it's the full station, even though that's not how it happens in the book. But, you know, for artistic purposes, it works. It tells us what we need to know. Um, and then, of course, we've got the one that's the standard one. But it also has a Barnes & Noble's version with that same cover that folds out and has a comic-looking cover on the inside. Um, I didn't get that one. I just got the basic one. And that basic one, it's just got that computer-generated character stuff kind of very similar to what the uh, legacy comics would do on a lot of their covers where you know a lot of people didn't like it but to me it's no different than going from like the grand inquisitor from rebels to what we're going to get in the kenobi series you know it's like they're not supposed to always line up the mediums are different and there's an artistic licensing going on in that that you know like i'm okay with it i definitely think that the you know one that they had with the pl the station crashing is my favorite of them all. This one in the background, you can kind of see that some of the station has cracked windows and stuff, but I, I don't know. I don't feel like that one doesn't really give you much of what you're getting, but then again, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 what's it called? The not generic, the, uh, the more widespread, uh, cover. Uh, mm -hmm. it's fine. Um, it does show the cracking of the the station behind them. You get the couple of those computer-generated characters. They're fine. It's not great. It's not terrible. That out-of-print edition, though, is absolutely gorgeous. I wish I had gotten it. I'm just literally looking right now. I'm like, oh, I never got that one. I got the out-of-print edition for the first two, but I didn't get it for this one. Oh, I'm looking, and I don't know if it's still for sale because oh, that, that, that book is absolutely gorgeous. Right? Yeah, no, it, it really is. That's definitely my favorite. In fact, we'll have to put it on the show notes because it's just that good. All right, so that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division Podcast at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher as well as Spotify and even on iTunes. And as always, we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. 
You can find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in the search bar. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars questions or Legends questions or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe, the expanded universe, or the Harry Potter, or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year's, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Jim. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. Don't quote us the odds. That you also do not have a Wookiee-sized hole in your heart. <laughs> after reading this book. Dang you, Claudia. You <laughs> tore my heart out. You ripped my Wookiee from me again. <laughs> Let the Wookiee win, Jim. Let the Wookiee win. <laughs>